Good evening, everyone. Nice to be here with you. This is a little different from what I usually experience. But I want to thank you all for, uh, for inviting me to speak to the Sangha. I want to thank Jim and Dora Lee and the board for the invitation and just for all the work that they do keeping this wonderful organization going in this wonderful place. So thank you so much. And, uh, and a thank you just to Sangha. Um, I'm still carrying with me the recent Jukai from early October and of everything that took place that day and of all that I'll, I'll remember <coughs> the, just the memory of, of the Sangha and how everyone came out for Tony and I, and it was just extraordinary. It was just a really, it was, and I think you'll see by the end of this talk just kind of where my gratitude comes from, that I've found this community and all of you, and it's a, a really extraordinary part of my life and, and of what I do here on this planet Earth. So I'm really glad that I found all of you, and I really thank you all for for that ceremony and just for 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 your presence and your practice. So, um, my way-seeking mind talk. Um, I was born, <laughs> that's a good place to start, in Connecticut, the great state of Connecticut. And um, my family is, uh, for the most part, from New England and has been for four generations or so, and before that, Ireland. And um, my parents met in New York City in the, in the late 70s and then had me in the mid-80s in Connecticut. And then they had my brothers a couple, uh, four years later and um, they're twins, twin um, Connor and Rory, my, my brothers. And so that's our, that's our family. And my uh, folks gradually kind of tiptoed away from the family center um, to kind of go be on their own. And that brought us uh, eventually out to California. And we've been out here for... 25 years or so now. So, so Sacramento's been home for a long time. Um, one of the uh, of my my folks wanted independence from their family, but they also wanted to get away from you know the the situation that they had been raised in that was still there because it was a, a difficult situation for both of them, um, especially for my mother. Uh, she grew up in an extremely abusive household with alcoholic parents. And so she carried a lot of uh, trauma and um, from those experiences, and my father too, from his experiences. They you know, grew up with a great amount of neglect and abuse and just you know kind of a, a tough upbringing. And that, as I've learned, is something that carries on in, in a number of ways, um, what we might call intergenerational trauma and my folks did what I think people try to do in that situation when they're carrying a really long burden that has that has manifested itself to them perhaps at an early age they they tried to give us everything that they could provide to us and to my brothers and I they wanted a family that they didn't have and they gave us a great deal um, as much as People can, especially when they're you know, working class folks trying to raise a family. And but at the same time, um, as often happens, even when there's a lot of love and good intention, there's a you know the shadow of bad inter intergenerational trauma, the shadow of you know mental health issues um, can can it perpetuates and it it continues to affect lives. It affected mine, and it will continue to affect those that come after me, even, even though a lot of the people involved have been gone for a really long time. Um, I didn't understand this when I was young, though, when I was first seeing this legacy in my family, um, especially as the oldest, I got something of a front row seat at times. And seeing what my parents were struggling with, what they were suffering from, was intense and it clouded my own perception of things to a great degree. I was also coming into my own inheritance at a, around the age of 11. I started to experience symptoms that, that I now know were depression and anxiety. 
And this really deepened for me um, pretty quickly. And I found myself really living with a very anxious state of mind at a really young age. And a lot of people experience this when they're you know, in, in middle school or experiencing puberty. But for me, it was pretty intense. And I was very anxious about fitting in, being bullied, money at home. There wasn't a whole lot of it. Um, and then I was worried about my parents a lot, the way kids often do when you see your folks just struggle and you don't really understand it all and you feel fairly helpless. And so I felt that a great deal. I need to remind myself to take some breaths from time to time. So uh, this was the 90s. Childhood depression was still kind of a new concept, even for folks who had kind of experienced something themselves. So there wasn't a lot of understanding about what was happening to me, but my grades weren't so good, and I was had a really vast inner life um, that I think a lot of people do when they're kind of like lonely and a little afraid of things outside there. I, I retreated, and I was a really imaginative kid, um, but I was just kind of a, had a hard time relating to things that were inside of my own head. So, so things got a little, they tended to get, get a little harder for me than they got better. And I became a teenager and we came out here, which was good. Um, but I got, uh, I was still just really having a hard time all the time. And, and when I got to about 16, I really started to experience really, truly kind of depressive episodes. And I really didn't want to go to school anymore because I was afraid to. And I really kind of developed, I think, a pretty strong uh, relationship to fear, not the type of like, oh, there's a tiger, I should run, but just that kind of malaise, that just feeling that something's just always kind of off or um, that, you know, it's just, it's not right, something's coming, you know, just that, that more than suffering, just that kind of um, That um, well, I, I'm trying to find another word, but just 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 fear of being of being frightened, yeah. And uh, so I I kind of threw myself into things that um, I thought gave me a, an outlet. I I, I started uh, writing. I was really wanted to be a playwright. I thought if if I could create art of what I was feeling, then it'd be worth it, or it'd be useful in some way. Um, I also really got into uh, activism as a young person because the, the Iraq war was going on and I threw myself into uh, uh, being an anti-war activist. You know, in retrospect, these were pretty intense pursuits for, a, for a, a teenager, but this was just how I was kind of finding my way. Um, but then uh, I, I, I didn't want to go to college because I just did not like school, it just made me feel all sorts of, you know, not great stuff. and. I thought, I, well, I'm just going to go become a, a writer. I thought people who went to college to study how to become artists were dopes anyway. I, you know, it, wasn't, it was kind of arrogant of me, but I didn't think that that was where you went to become an artist. Uh, I went to Europe for a while. I traveled. I, you know, I thought I was going to be a world-traveling writer, but you know, I ran out of money and came back to Sacramento and started working and uh, eventually got a job at a coffee house in Sacramento. I didn't have a lot of direction, but I was just kind of, okay, I'll get a job and start working and started living with a couple people in Midtown. And, um, and that's when I uh, really started to drink. And I'd, I'd already discovered alcohol before in Europe. I could drink and, you know, I'd go visit some friends of mine at college. I'd binge drink. And, and I was, so I already had this understanding that alcohol had this quality to it. It could release you from fear. It could release you from anxiety. It was amazing um, just to kind of feel like I was the person who I, I felt I was without myself in the way. And so uh, I really, um, even though alcohol was a real, <laughs> I was a real cause of a lot of the 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 just the 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 pain and and suffering and trauma in my family. Once I experienced it myself, I thought, well, this is a really, this is a, this is, this is it. You know, I found something that can really help me. I can, I can just be who I want to be and I'll, I'll be more interesting and, and happier and people will like me more. So, you know, it was, and it was fun. 
And so I just kind of carried on like that. And for a while, it was fun. <laughs> Not always, but it had it, you know, its moments. I was young, and it, it seemed to make sense. This is what young people do. Um, they get hammered, and they try to, you know, have a good time. Uh, but it was, it was, it got to be uh, a lot. And over time, uh, it became, you know, it, it became part of my, the interior depression, anxiety became part of this complex that I already had. And so over time, it, it became an addiction. And I was, after the age of 24, I started drinking, you know, like a drunk. And I was, for about five years, I was, I was a really, um, I was a really pretty bad alcoholic. I worked in the restaurant industry, which is a great place to work if you've got an addiction. Um, because it's uh, a lot of other people do too, and it's hard, kind of hard to lose your job unless you really. And I held down a job forever. I was a functioning alcoholic, as they say. What they don't tell you a lot is that it's exhausting to be a functioning alcoholic. Um, it takes a lot out of you, um, and you think you're getting away with it, but you're not. You know you're not, but it's it's just your life holds together, but it just gets messier and messier. And if you've got a mental health issue, like I did, it just turns into this whirlwind of, well, you start to lose your mind after a while. And I was, you know, my, my, my inner world that I depended on so much when I was a kid, it went haywire. And it was just delusion. Yeah, I mean, there was nothing... There was nothing good about it. I wasn't writing plays anymore based on what I was seeing in my head. It was just, it was just how do we get through this day? Uh, what kind of delusion do we need to tell ourselves today? And some days it was, you know, go have a good time, have a drink, you know, live it up. Other days it was, you're a terrible person, sober up already and, and get with it. It was always something a little different, but it was just, it was the same as I come to realize now. It was the same aspect different aspects of my ego of myself just fighting constantly and the booze was a, was fuel but it was also helpful too it's it's difficult to kind of explain this part but you know every day that i got my fix was just at least for that moment that click i still got the same thing i got when i was young and you know the fear gone the anxiety gone the sense of division in myself gone and for just a little while at least or even for a few hours i could really just kind of enjoy my life um but it was just a mess and so uh i knew i needed to get better i knew um, i didn't know i wanted to live there were a lot of days especially when the depression was really awful and i was just binging and trying to, knowing that I had to get better, but not knowing how to. And um, because getting sober is like anything else, you got to learn how to do it. Um, it takes a lot of trial and error. It takes a lot of um, yeah, failure. And every time, hopefully, that you uh, try, at least, maybe you learn a little bit more, and hopefully you keep surviving. But you just, it's it's... Like learning how to do anything, except there's a brain chemistry thing involved too, so it's a little more difficult. But it's a habitual coming out of what you've done to yourself, with which is habitually finding a way to react to your trauma, your stress, whatever it may be. Um, so I had to learn how to do that, and I had to stay alive while I did it. And somehow I did, and I must. I tried negotiating with myself for a long time. Oh, if you just drink on the weekends and such, you know, and, you know maybe it will work out. But no. It was. It didn't work in the end. So finally, I realized I had to just quit. But it was really hard. I sometimes I'd get a couple of weeks. Sometimes I'd get. I got four months at one point. That was great. But I I relapsed. And relapsing is hard because again, you learn over time that you're just learning how to do something. It's skillful means. But every time you fail, you feel like you're a failure. And you know. And and again, the fear. The suffering is hard, but it's the fear. Um, not just in the addiction, but in the depression too, that you're just, you're, you know, you know you'll come out of it. The binge will end. 
maybe you'll be sober for a little while. You know, you'll depression will end. You'll get some time where you're feeling better, but you know, it's coming back and the helplessness, not the suffering, but again, the fear of, of the suffering that it's just not going to, that this is it. And that one day you're just going to die of this and leave everybody kind of standing around thinking what they might have been able to do. But I didn't want that to happen, obviously. I still had these, all these wonderful people in my life who I wanted to live for, even if I wasn't sure I, I wanted to live. So I kept trying. And then on January 1st, 2016, and this is when things start getting better. <laughs> so thank you for bearing with me. Um, it, it stuck. Um, I, I said, okay, well, it's New Year's, so you might as well take a shot at being sober. It's a good day to, to start anew. But I, I didn't have a grand plan. I didn't know what I was doing. And maybe that's what helped in the end because I just kind of did the one day and I got through and I did another and I did another. And it's, uh, it's been six years and uh, what, 10 months and 21 days now since I've had a drink. So since then... It's been really hard <laughs> because, you know, quitting your addiction is just the first step. You gotta then learn to live without it, and um, and and you gotta learn how to live. And and I had to learn how to live with the depression. So that's been that's been my journey since then is learning how to and and addiction is still part of that journey. I've oftentimes fallen back on marijuana. And if not that, coffee or whatever, you know, I, I still have that in me. And, and I've come to accept it. It's really, there's a lot that goes into learning how to just live without booze, but also live with recovery. And, and part of it is that you do kind of, especially when you've got a, a lot of years where you, you know, you, you were doing this to yourself, you know, you're, you're alive and that's great. But you look around, especially when you're starting out and it's kind of like you're surrounded by ruins. You know, you're like, oh, my God, what did I do? Why did I do it? How did I do it? I, you have so many questions. And, and then, you, you know, um, and that's, that's, that's hard. There's a lot of shame and humiliation involved in kind of figuring you know, you, you're, you're like, okay, I survived, but what is what is survival and what, what comes next? And so for me in 2016, um, that was a weird year. I, I like to joke and say that that was the year I found sanity and everybody else lost theirs. Um, so it was it was a funny year to be to be sober. Uh, I got through the election. I was even working in a restaurant surrounded by booze, but I got through the election. And I thought, well, if I got through this, maybe I can get through just about anything. Um, but I, 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 and I did, I used to stay in the restaurant industry for a little while, uh, a couple of years after that, but I've since left, um, which it feels great to just completely be away from, from alcohol and, and drinking and to, to have a much better livelihood now. Um, so yeah, so now, uh, so 2016 was good. I was so happy that I, that I had something good going. Um, good things were coming to me, it was like I was getting feedback already. I met my partner, Melissa, not long after I, I got sober, and we've been together ever since. And I thought, okay, I can I can work with this situation. But I still felt this sense of like, okay, I learned how to swim, and that's great, but I can't swim forever on my own. I, I need a I need a boat, and I need a good solid boat if 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 there's one out there. And I and I I had not been religious since you know, toying with Catholicism when I was a kid. And I never thought I'd have a religion or a religious community or clergy members in my life. I mean, but one day um, late in 2016, when I was just kind of, kind of a little edgy, um, there was a, an old, uh, this older gentleman who was a regular at the restaurant I worked at, at and he we knew each other well enough. He felt comfortable to come up to me and, and say, like, hey, you seem like you've been kind of white-knuckling a little bit, you know. Um, and he said, I, I was thinking about you, and I thought about these books you might be interested in, if you're interested. And he gave me a couple books, and they were both by Pema Chodron. And one was, if I can remember, it was uh, Wisdom of No Escape and Start Where You Are. And he just, all he said was, just you read them, see what you get out of them, and send them on to somebody else when you're done reading it. And I, I did all that, and I was really touched by her books, and I really just liked the language that she used, and it felt so different from what I had experienced, because coming out of my, of the experiences I had had throughout my life, 
you know, I felt so great to be away from the one extreme, but I, I didn't have trust in my life and I didn't have faith. And I, and I was afraid of just, especially with the depression, just continuing to go between extremes and never quite finding any sort of balance or, or real confidence in especially, and that's a big part of living in recovery is it's hard to find your confidence again because you did this to yourself. I mean, it's, you, you learn that that's not quite how it went, but, but how do you trust someone who went down that road and now you're, you're still that person. You're saying, we'll go down this road. <laughs> you're going, okay. Okay. Um, but I read those books and reading this language of someone just talking about trust and talking about faith and, um, and talking about it in a really radical way. And I, and I got that sense, just a little bit of a sense of, okay, well, maybe there is this, this quality of balance in this. So I kept reading and I read Thich Nhat Hanh, who, um, it's a huge, huge part of my life. And, and, you know, just, I think for a lot of people, it just opened the, the doors for me, you know, in a, in a big way. And I really connected, not just to his writings, but just seeing him on YouTube and watching just him, seeing him speak to a song and, and watching him walk. And I thought, wow, this is actually someone who embodies, you know, these qualities I'm, I'm reading about. And then eventually I thought, well, this isn't just a religion you read about. This is something that you know, millions and millions of people practice all over the world, and I should go see if I can find a temple. And so I, I, uh, I found Lions Roar Dharma Center um, over in Isak, which is just a wonderful community and um, a great sangha life. And Lama Jimpa there was really helpful um, to me. And and I started sitting, and I started getting something of a grasp of you know the concepts in Buddhism, and I started really finding peace and a way forward, um, you know, in what I was learning. I was also, though, finding that that I, I, I wanted a practice that was something that I could really, as a, as a, you know, as a beginner, kind of fully understand more. And Tibetan Buddhism, I found a little esoteric. And then one day, kind of when I was having these thoughts, Jim came to speak at uh, Lion's Roar and was invited by Lama Jimpa and gave a really wonderful talk. And I was really, I, you know, I, of course, we all hear about Zen. It's, you know, somewhat appropriated throughout our culture, the term and the concept. So I, I was like, okay, well, I've always heard about Zen and I, and I really appreciated the talk. Um, and I thought, well, there's, here's this place called Valley Streams. I'll go check it out sometime. And it took me a little while. And Melissa would sometimes joke that, you know, when are you going to see the Dark Lord? Because Jim kind of stood out among the crimson and, and yellow. I was like, okay, I'll go see the Dark Lord at some point. <laughs> um, how am I doing it? What time is it? Oh, you're good. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so eventually I did come to Valley Streams and it was the, it was in the year before COVID and um, instantly I just really loved sitting in this space and I thought, okay, well, let's, let's, um, let's see what, what Zen is about and maybe this will, maybe this will come through for me. And, and it was this book actually that really did it. And um, I don't know if any of you have heard of this book, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, um, you know, it was one of many books that, that really kind of opened up the path as something that can actually be practiced, that this is actually, you know, this is, I mean, I, I find most Buddhist books are, are like that, but this was truly just, it spoke to me. This is a, this is a really powerful book, and it really, um, and I thought, okay, this is, this is, this is something I want to pursue. This is something I want to, to learn a lot more about. Um, COVID had just begun, and so I was, I thought, well, there's obviously no better time than the present. Um, so I went to Jim and I asked him if I could um, begin working towards saving the precepts. And since then, I've been a member of this community, and it's been, I was with you all in most weeks on Zoom, and then came back here, and um, 
I continue to to be challenged by uh, the path that I've that I've that I've walked my whole life by by depression and anxiety and addiction um, by the many challenges that we all are facing, you know, throughout our lives and in this world that we all live in. Um, but this this practice has become a bedrock for me and is, is really important. And I'm I'm going to talk a little bit now that I've sort of gone through the biography part um, about what I've what I found and how it relates to me in, in through what I've experienced and then we can open things up to questions and discussions. So um, I was thinking of everything I've I've read and, and experienced. I was just trying to, to think about you know moments where I felt the the Buddha Dharma really opened up to me or uh, you know things that I've that I've really uh, just just find in my own life and and one one thing that really struck me when I was first learning about Dogen is the story of uh, when Dogen was a child and this may be apocryphal um, but I but I've seen it told of, uh, in a couple of different places his his mother passed away and it said that he when he was uh, when he was during the vigil for his mother he was standing by her and the candles and the incense and and that was when he decided that he needed to find out what suffering was and and you know what there is to be done about it and that was when he devoted himself to this practice and i really connected to that because just the imagery of of a, of a child standing by their their mother who's completely gone you know in, in as they experience it and and that is suffering but also what i've been talking about you know the the fear of it of of death and of and of losing someone so valuable to you and i would imagine that that a person experiencing that would be completely changed not just by the presence of such absolute kind of loss and suffering but but just by the the attending uh, uh, fear and 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 the sense of turmoil that it brings that this is not no one could look at that and say this is natural that 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 would take a lifetime of study to get to that point but that seems to me to be what Dogen did and um, I find that really powerful because it really is what the Buddha sought out to do and it's something that I think has always driven me is this sense of what is this suffering what is this that pervades us and then and that fills with us with so much angst um, even when we're pretty aware that that angst doesn't really need to be there you know that the suffering is is, is going to be there regardless and that it will pass somehow but the angst and the fear is attendant upon us and that's something that's always just driven me towards these in the past towards these really um, negative uh, behaviors this, this this resistance to things and this kind of you know throwing chairs around and and allowing chaos in your life rather than just allowing things to be as they are um, and, I, and I equated uh, there's a Robert Aiken um, version of the uh, of the first noble truth that when I read it really opened it up the, the opened up the, the all four of the noble truths but the first noble truth of, is often put as this is suffering or everything is suffering I think that was probably more or less what I first read when I read the first noble truths but I read his his version of it and it, it just kind of opened it up for me he he wrote it as um, there's an there's an there's an unending sense of absence in everything and to me that really uh, it was like okay that's a that's a definition of suffering I can really understand um, the idea that that there is always this something missing um, that suffering is this kind of gap between what how things are and what you would like them to be and you know there was that kind of just unfathomable gap that Dogen experienced in the in the moment between what he would have liked things to be and what it was and I just think that that's something that we carry carry with us, and and uh, and for me in that 
especially coming from these extreme extreme experiences and 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 then entering on a path where I was now responsible for for what came next and responsible for finding that balance and and Zen brought a prescription in a way that sitting is the beginning towards feeling that middle way, feeling that balance. And I'm going to go now to to Suzuki, who's going to bear out that concept real quick. So he says, uh, I do not feel like speaking after Zazen. I feel the practice of Zazen is enough. But if I must say something, I think I would like to talk about how wonderful it is to practice Zazen. Our purpose is just to keep this practice forever. This practice started from beginningless time and it will continue into an endless future. Strictly speaking, for a human being, there is no other practice than this practice. There is no other way of life than this way of life. Zen practice is the direct expression of our true nature. Of course, whatever we do is the expression of our true nature, but without this practice, it is difficult to realize. It is our true nature to be active, and the nature of every existence. As long as we are alive, we are always doing something. But as long as you think I'm doing this, or I have to do this, or I must attain something special, you are actually not doing anything. When you give up, when you no longer want something, or when you do not try to do anything special, then you do something. When there is no gaining idea in what you do, then you do something. In Zazen, what you are doing is not for the sake of anything. You may feel as if you're doing something special, but actually it is only the expression of your true nature. It is the activity which appeases your inmost desire. But as long as you think you're practicing Zazen for the sake of something, that is not true practice. Uh, the one uh, favorite quote of mine from uh, the Polish poet, Wyszlawa Saborska, the Nobel Prize winner, she once said that I choose the absurdity of writing poetry over the absurdity of not writing poetry. <laughs> and that's a quote I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of years as I've embarked on this practice because I think you could sub out a lot of things for poetry and I think you can sub out um, practicing Zen. Not that it's absurd, but it's it's when you take a step back and look at everything, you know, we are so strongly engaged with so much of what we do, no matter what it may be. And, and we put so much value on certain things and other things less so, but really there's just this wonderful quality of being. And that is why I, I do this. And that's why I've, I come here, and that's why I sit, because that balance, that middle path, and that wonderful just quality of being, of just wanting to write poetry, wanting to sit. And then when you find that value, when you realize that this is your inmost desire, that you just keep coming back. Like Suzuki says, we keep this practice forever. And... This is healing to me because I always wanted to fix it all. And I always wanted to write myself. And I thought that I would get sober and things would fall into place and it'd be perfect. And that was just another delusion. And every day I find myself kind of walking on a different delusion. But when I'm, when I'm here and I'm sitting like I was earlier before, there are just these moments when I touch the absence of fear. The suffering is still there. The trauma, the intergenerational trauma, the karma is still there. But the fear dissipates. I can see it for what it is, which is this, it is this extra quality of being afraid of the suffering, of being afraid of the trauma. And so it's a, it's, it's a long journey, and I'm just starting it, and I'm really glad that I'm able to take it all with you and enjoy this this absurdity of sitting and practicing Zen and getting together on Monday nights 
but it's really healing for me, and I don't always feel that way. I still, you know, even after my Jukai, I really had a difficult bout of depression again. And but you know, I wasn't. It didn't tear me down. I didn't think, oh, what a tragedy my life is, because that's how I used to be, and I don't think of my life so much as a tragedy. It's a. This is an experience I'm having, and uh, it is a situation that I'm in, and I just, I really. You know, as, as difficult and challenging as things get, I really find trust and faith, two things I never thought I would have in my life again, but I really do find trust and faith in this practice and in this sangha and the opportunity to get to to sit and heal and, and to, to share it with all of you. So thank you so much for, for listening, and if anybody has any questions or comments. Thank you, Brendan, for sharing your life with us. I just wanted to say that as a a fellow sufferer of um, fear and anxiety, um, that, that that I, I think I've recognized the same silver lining that you have, that um, there is a cure or there is relief. And um, so in a way for us, we're pretty lucky because um, there's always um, a push. You know, there's always a push to go back to the cushion, to... Um, to, to uh, relieve uh, these feelings and see that they're uh, not really real. You know, they're not really permanent. They're not really fixed. And uh, so I just think, you know, we're kind of lucky in a way, even though many times it doesn't feel like it many times. But we, we've always got that push. And also, I think uh, it's interesting about uh, January 1st, 2016, uh, because it, it just happened, right? It just, all of a sudden, some, you, you didn't make a big, you said, you didn't make a big vow or anything. You just, like, started again, you know? You began again on the path of sobriety. And uh, after after many times of failure. And uh, I, I think that's often the way it works, actually. You know, at some point, and you don't know, you don't know why, why, you know. You know why did the person stop smoking that day, you know? Yeah. But, but, but there was that day, and it's an, it'll always be an important day, but it wasn't much of a day, you know? It wasn't anything special. <laughs> No, no, it wasn't. You know, it, I mean, people use the term rock bottom sometimes, and, and I don't know, that, that that's a weird term because I, you think you've hit rock bottom a number of times before, you know, and you run out of road, I think, is more the, the, the right way of putting it, you know, you, and I, and I think, and I've, and I felt that again in Zen too, because your resistance fails eventually. You know, I think in a lot of cases, not always, you know, sometimes the resistance is serious. Sometimes you don't, you just don't survive. And we shouldn't forget that when we're talking about this. A lot of people don't make it. And, but if you're lucky, you run out of road and you're not able to resist. You stop being able to fight. It becomes so ridiculous (laughs) and so defeating even though it's been that way forever and you've been defeated so many times, for some reason, it just, at least in how I've experienced and talking to other people, it just finally just takes because it's almost like, like, how could it not? It could not, but yeah, it falls into place finally. You just kind of have to figure it out. Yeah.
if you're lucky, it falls into place, as and you if, say. And if it, you have help, too. Yeah, and if you have help. I think that's a big part of it is, is, you know, people need a lot of help. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I have a question from Andrea. Hi, Andrea. Hi, everybody. Uh, Brendan, thank you for your story. Um, as a fellow person in recovery, I always enjoy hearing how people, you know, got sober and especially learning about how Buddhism factored into the recovery. Um, the same is true for me. Pema Chodron was actually the first author I read at the very beginning of my recovery. And I, it didn't click with me even still. I had to go and sit with some, sit with some people in meditation circle. Um, what I really appreciate, not the, the similarities I appreciate, but also the difference, um, in the way that you talked about how you got sober and how you are someone who was able to do that. I didn't hear you mention anything about 12 step, you know, and that was the road that I took. And that's the world that I live in now as a substance use disorder counselor. And I always read, you know, in my trainings that, you know, most people are able to stop on their own, you know, before it's too late. And so I especially appreciated hearing your story about how you were able to do that. And um, to thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and thank you for your work because we were just talking about how people need help. And I just, yeah, for for those who are there w- with a helping hand, it, whatever field they work in, whether in, 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 in as a professional or, or like here in, in this situation, it's, and I think that's a, that's another thing that I really, again, I, you know, appreciate about the, this practice. And, and this is something I really have come to appreciate about this world that we live in is that there is, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of pain out there and a lot of people having a hard time, but there are people who really give, they just give a lot to people who've been through it and people who haven't, but they're just, they're really committed to, to helping people find their way because you can change and you should, you do deserve to survive. Um, and, uh, and being able to, to give is, you know, that's, that's a, that's part of what we do here. I mean, that's, that's, to me, that's, that's why we, that's why we do come back every day and sit because you're learning, um, not just how to sit every day, but you're just learning how to show up and, and, and really do as, 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 as we're taught by the Buddha, you know, is, is done in this world, which is just to be generous and to allow generosity to flow. So it's, that's, but that's a really deep lesson that takes a long time. Uh, I just want, do you want, do you want some to say something? Okay, I'll just say one one thing. I, I, I was thinking about your, the story, which I well know of uh, Dogen's uh, seeing, you know, the incense rising over his mother's at his mother's uh, deathbed, and and uh, you know seeing uh, you know the truth of impermanence. And but what what I think is uh, that um, it occurred to me just as you were telling the story that. Um, Maybe at that time, what what was really going on for Dogen too was, um, you know, life is really short, and um, you know, I mean, I don't know if this would be conscious in his mind, but but there was like a, it was like a, a, some the 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 spark was lit for him to uh, really get to the you know to really see that what was really important was to get to the bottom as much as possible of what this life is. Yeah. And and I think that was the you know, it just seemed to me that's the that's the moment. What is this life? And what is this consciousness? And what is my relationship to others? And how can I actualize that in a most thorough way? And of course he was brilliant and so forth, but um it just seemed like that also was the moment of, of, uh, of, a vow really, you know, of a vow to, to, you know, to get to the bottom as much as possible of what this life is. Yes, I think so. I think I, I think I had a slightly different 
you know, path than Dogen from, you know, I would have liked to have had his, whatever he had at a young age, but, but were he here, I'm sure he would, he would be the first to say, oh, well, you know, it worked out for you too, <laughs> you know. Thank you so much, Brendan. I just appreciated how open and honest about your whole journey. And, you know, we that's a gift that you give us to support us to be honest with ourselves about the ways that we suffer. And, and I especially liked the way you kept coming back to fear because that's something that I've thought a lot about, too, that you know, underneath so much of our suffering is fear. But we have to kind of keep, you know, introspecting in a way or, or wondering so that you can kind of get down to, oh, I'm scared. And I, I'm still shocked sometimes to, to see that, oh, that's what this is, you know, that's what my suffering's about, even though I didn't know that at the beginning. And, uh, so, so you were—you just kept saying that many times that you would come back to that, and once you realize it, something opens and frees you because that's where we rely on Prajnaparamita. You know, the you know the that's the wisdom is there uh, yes. to let go into. So, um, and the moment that always kind of makes me stand up a little bit taller is, you know, without hindrance, there is no fear. That's right, exactly. You know, and, and I, that's just, that's something that, mm -hmm. it, yeah, it, it, it really puts suffering under the microscope. It makes you wonder, you know, what is, there's, there's, there's no question that this has to be experienced and endured, whatever comes up. Um, but, you know, I, I remember in, in the first time when we met, when Jim and I met to, to discuss Taking the, the the precepts a couple of years ago, and, and we I, I still remember that was part of our conversation. I, I remember just saying, in, in kind of almost like a desperation way, because I was just starting this journey, and I was just saying, I, I I'm okay with suffering. I just don't want to feel, you know, frightened of it all the time. I mean, I want to enjoy the good times. I don't want to be afraid all the time. You know, I know I'm going to suffer, but what about, you know, if I already know I'm going to suffer? Whoops. I already know I'm going to suffer. You know, I, I I just want to experience that, and but then experience this life and and all of it. You know. Yeah, I remember when Rabbi Anderson said, you know, we're afraid to suffer, and that just sort of, you know, opened it up again. Well, what's I can be with whatever is here. Um, but I also wanted to comment on the the man that gave you the books. Mm. I mean, it was almost like, you know, the Jiso Bodhisattva came into the bar or something and, yeah. <laughs> you know, was there at the right moment. And, and things like that happen, I think, to many of us. They happen all the time. I, I kind of love those stories when you just, you read in someone's biography of just like, just this random encounter. And it just sets, it's, it, it, it shows a, a person a way forward, you know, or changes their life or just their, or they go, okay, you know. Let's explore this. Let's see where this leads. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, thanks, Brendan. Uh, I, uh, I can't really express how much I appreciate the courage and um, clear-sightedness and integrity that with which you've pursued your suffering. Um, and it's quite inspirational. And uh, with Andrea, I, I, it's pretty common to meet uh, people who have had addictions, addictive problems in, in this practice. But just about all of them have um, had help uh, through 12-step program, usually. And uh, I'm very kind of flabbergasted <laughs> mm -hmm. 
that, oh, wow, you just, January 1st, 2016. Took you a while to get there, <laughs> a few times around the block. But, um, but eventually you, you know, you got to that place on your own. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if it's better or worse than any other way to do it, but that was the way you did it. And um, I'm glad. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for your talk tonight. Have any questions or comments? Shall we? Anyone on Zoom? Yes. I would never call you the Dark Lord. That was slander. It's true. Thank you all again, and I hope you all have a wonderful evening. May our intention equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Thank you all. And thank, thank you, all. Brandon. Have a great night. I will say as the mom of Brendan. Gosh, here we go. Here we go. Brendan is one of the reasons I keep fighting and keep surviving what I went through as a child. When he was able to give up the alcohol which is something nobody in my family has ever been able to do. It was very extreme for me. It helped me heal. And it gave me the strength to just keep on fighting and to find some happiness in this world. I'm very lucky that I have my three sons and my husband. Um, I couldn't ask for anything more. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Mom. Night. <laughs> you, you are lucky. <laughs> I am. This is very true. <laughs> Thank you all again. Everyone have a wonderful night and get home safe. <laughs>